Hey, you're listening to episode 34 of Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. For weeks now, Ukraine has dominated the headlines in both mainstream and independent media. Following on the heels of COVID-19, the Ukraine conflict, oddly enough, has a surprising parallel with the pandemic. The specter of lab leaks, gain-of-function research, and potentially bioterror. In late February, soon after the conflict between Ukraine and Russia erupted, a theory emerged that many of the Russian missile strikes throughout the Ukraine had coincided with the locations of U.S.-funded biolabs in the country. While I personally did not look into or confirm whether that alleged coincidence was true, the Bulgarian journalist Dilyana Gaitanyeva took to Twitter to claim that the U.S. embassy in Ukraine was subsequently deleting documentation about Pentagon-funded biolabs present in the country. Initially derided as a nutty conspiracy dreamt up by the Kremlin and the organs of Russian propaganda, the godmother of the 2014 U.S.-backed coup in Ukraine and current Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, Victoria Nuland, testified before the U.S. Senate on March 8th and confirmed that the U.S. has, quote, biological research facilities throughout Ukraine. Many of those who had previously dismissed their existence as having been just a kooky conspiracy theory then shifted gears, arguing now that these biological research facilities were benign and unconnected to any potential bioweapons research. However, old media reports and U.S. government documents unearthed by one of my guests today shows that at least one of the Pentagon-funded biolabs in Ukraine, located in the coastal city of Odessa, was a biosafety level 3 lab researching, quote, dangerous pathogens used by bioterrorists, end quote, and that more generally, the U.S. government feels that monitoring the so-called biological research facilities in Ukraine and other countries is essentially pointless because bioweapons research is easily, quote, disguised within legitimate activities. Joining me today to explore these Pentagon-funded labs, the Pentagon programs and contractors behind them, and how they are fueling old bioterror narratives that date back decades are Robbie Martin of the Media Roots Radio podcast and a Twitter-based researcher who goes by the pseudonym Gumby. For those interested, you can find Gumby's very insightful Twitter account under the handle Gumby4Christ, with four being the number four. Thanks for coming back on the podcast, Robbie, and thanks for joining me for the first time today, Gumby. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me back on, Whitney. Always a pleasure. Doing really well. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So um, since we're getting started here, as I see it, there's a, a few separate issues since this topic first emerged and has since developed. So as far as I know, uh, and as I mentioned in, in my intro, when this topic first came about um, in the context of the current conflict between Ukraine and Russia, there was this claim that Russia originally intended to target biolabs funded by the U.S. government in Ukraine, and that their missile strike locations were hitting places that seemed to match up with the biolabs. Uh, so for the purposes of this podcast, uh, I just want to make it explicit before we start that I'd prefer to focus more on the existence of these biolabs and what we know rather than the theory as to whether Russia initially targeted them or not, because I haven't seen actual confirmation of that. And it seems like Russia's government didn't really start to become uh, publicly vocal about these facilities until after Victoria Nuland's statements. So um, I just wanted to, to say that um, before we start off. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, well, the timing of it was interesting where uh, it seemed like Russia started actually officially saying things about these labs, like right when they invaded. Uh, so the there really wasn't much leading up to the invasion where they were making a big deal about the labs in Ukraine. They had previously, though, in 2018, yeah. made a big stink about the Luger Center lab in Georgia, specifically that does similar work. But 
they kind of, I, I mean, I hadn't really seen anything coming from them about these until pretty much the day of the invasion. And it, like you said, it was mostly relegated to um, that Bulgarian journalist, official statements from Russia. Some journalists have tried to claim it came from a QAnon account on Telegram or Gab or something. But other than those, you know, people talking about it, I didn't really see much. And uh, until Victoria Newland, like you said, actually basically confirmed some of those supposed conspiracy theories um, about it, which was, I think, a really big deal because she could have just said no uh, when Marco Rubio actually asked her if there were biological weapons there. I mean, so she didn't say that. Um, and I think that really created an opening for people to actually seriously wonder what's going on at these labs, even though simultaneously the blue check sort of liberal media is firing on all cylinders trying to put this narrative to bed, debunk it, say that there's, you know, that there's nothing problematic with any of these labs. There's even people saying there's there's not even BSL-3 labs in Ukraine, which is a lie. Um, and there's also people saying that biodefense you know, I've even seen leftists taking the stance that biodefense is actually defense and it's benign and it's not nefarious. So the, all these labs under the guise of biodefense are really, it's not a problem. Like we shouldn't worry about it. So that's what I'm seeing a lot of other people saying right now. And it's, um, it's strange that that's, uh, where people are going with it. Yeah. And I would agree with all of that. Um, I think probably within somewhat of the context of Ukraine, the earliest, statement that kind of alluded to biolabs was actually a joint Russia-China statement that they released during the Olympics on uh, February 4th. And in that, they they really, they didn't specifically talk about Ukrainian biolabs, oh, wow. but they, um, they said uh, essentially that the U.S. is flouting the Biological Weapons Convention and uh, called for institutionalizing it, strengthening its mechanisms, and, quote, adopting a legally binding protocol to the convention with an effective verification mechanism. And then I think also um, said that the size emphasized that domestic and foreign bioweapons activity by the United States and its allies raised serious concerns and questions for the international community. So they were talking pretty directly about that the U.S. has a bioweapons program. And what they're alluding to with the verification mechanism, which is kind of a boring phrase, but what they're talking about is that the Biological Weapons Convention was passed back in 1972, and it was never given teeth. So there is no, unlike the OPCW, which has some investigatory abilities and staff and all of that, and of course we know that's been politicized from Syria and all of that, Right. But the Biological Weapons Convention doesn't even have that. They have no ability to investigate labs. They have no staff to go in and look at, um, you know, if there are allegations like Russia's been making, they have nobody that can go in and, and look at that, uh, investigate. Uh, there's, there's nothing, basically, that gives the Biological Weapons Convention teeth. And the reason for that they had worked for, I believe, five or six years on developing one in the mid to late 90s. And then in 2001, they were set to vote on it to pass it. And the Bush administration um, shut it down, basically said, yep. no, we don't really think that that's going to work because, uh, you know, things might look like <laughs> like weapons uh, when they're really not, and, <laughs> you know, this kind of thing. And, you know, they they 
they left open the door that maybe it would happen in the future. Of course, it didn't under Bush. And then Obama gets in and does the exact same thing, says that um, it has an even more direct statement that I think you maybe quoted from there in the beginning, uh, where the ambassador to the UN, uh, whose name I can't remember, but it was somebody who was in Congress during the anthrax attack. So that's kind of an interesting angle there, too said, basically, it is extraordinarily difficult to verify compliance, the ease with which a biological weapons program could be disguised within legitimate activities and the rapid advances in biological research make it very difficult to detect violations. Essentially saying, yeah, you know, when you're doing biological research on pathogens, they're, uh, they're admitting uh, that there isn't a way. You know, if you're dealing with dangerous pathogens, it may very well look like weapons research. And if you read into the literature that's on this, the kind of arms control people, they'll back this up and they'll say, for the most part, that once you start dealing with these really deadly pathogens, it all comes down to intent. And, you know, you can't really yeah. divine intent um, in that kind of obvious way. So what you were referring to with the the Bush administration porching that is, as I recall, um, that had that happened before uh, the anthrax attacks, and they basically yeah. were trying to prevent, um, I guess, inspections of of facilities uh, that apparently one of them was the source of the anthrax used in that uh, th those attacks. So that's um pretty relevant. And then also um, uh, piggybacking off of what you just said at the um, end there, a, a lot of times when people justify like gain of function research, uh, they say that it's uh, uh, one of their main proponents who I quoted in an old article on on UPMC, the guy that runs their Center for Vaccine Research. I'm uh, blanking on his name because it's it's um it's been a bit. He essentially says the only reason to do gain of function research is to learn interesting biology. Uh, or to uh, use it for vaccine research specifically. Um, and so basically gain-of-function research a lot of times is very much related to uh, the production of, of vaccines, and that usually goes under the biodefense banner more often than not. But of course, you can also use gain-of-function um, experiments to make a pathogen more deadly or you know uh, more contagious or various other things, right? So it, it definitely is very... Um, a very murky uh, distinction to make, I guess, um, in in this world. So um, now that we have that um, uh, out of the way, I guess, uh, maybe it's a good place to start exploring what we actually know and don't know about these Ukraine biolabs and also about the people uh, running them. So uh, Gumby, uh, I know that you've done a lot of really good stuff. Well, dug up a lot of really good stuff too um, related to this. So maybe you can uh, help us start off here. Yeah, so a, a lot of this goes back to the what they call the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program, or Nunn Luger, Sam Nunn and Richard Luger, who are two um, senators who set up this, uh, I guess you call non-proliferation bill in the, I think they had something in the early 80s and passed something in the 90s. And throughout the yeah, 90s, early 90s. Yeah. And so throughout the 90s, they, they did do a lot of work in the former Soviet Union. Uh, as I understand it, the 90s was primarily focused around um, nuclear nonproliferation or, or ICBMs and mm -hmm. uh, that kind of work. And uh, in the early 2000s, they kind of added biological um, biodefense, bioweapons onto that. And um, the way this worked is that they had to create like individual agreements with each country that they were going into because they were basically going to partner up, send in the, a bunch of Pentagon people and Pentagon contractors 
and redo all of their update all of their um, old Soviet bioweapons facilities to make them not bio, you know, the opposite of bioweapons or whatever they want to claim. So in 2005, actually, Richard Luger travels to Kiev with Barack Obama (laughs) and they um, they uh, meet with the I think it was Timoshenko, Yulia Timoshenko at the time, who was the head and um, formed this agreement. It's signed while they're there to allow um, for Pentagon funds and personnel to you know, flow into the country, specifically to secure, quote unquote, pathogens and knowledge. And what that essentially means is that they were taking people who were allegedly or whatever worked on Soviet bioweapons programs and then just converting them and uh, paying them to work now for the U.S. or through several you know, layers of deniability through for the U.S. And um, they credited Yulia Tymoshenko specifically with being able to get this passed because there was a lot of understandable opposition within the Ukrainian government that, um, you know, why would we want the U.S. to come in here and, and basically mess around with our bio labs? And she was able to, um, uh, quote unquote, break the logjam. I think that was um, Barack Obama's term for it. And um, he actually has a, a a story I found just yesterday where he gave a speech. This was Obama in like 2005, shortly after he came back, I guess. And he tells this whole story about how they took him into some, you know, like decrepit, abandoned um, bio lab pathogen laboratory. And they uh, show him this refrigerator that's just got like a little lock on it, like a little tiny pad you put on your locker oh man and um he says uh there were rows upon rows of test tubes inside of this and this woman who was uh you know showing them around or whatever clanked them around and we listened to the translator explain what she was saying some of the tubes he said were filled with anthrax others the plague (laughs) so he's got this uh and then he tells a funny little joke the way obama likes to do that you know richard luger was standing at the back of the room or whatever you know, uh, uh, out of the way of the the deadly pathogens or something. Well, I just wanted to add something to that. To, I don't know if you saw this, Gumby, that the the video from Andy Weber where he's where he the, he has a photograph of him showing Obama a vial of anthrax from that visit. Have you seen that? No, no. So he so it's some COVID nineteen talk. This guy named Andy Weber did. He he was part of the his job under the Obama administration was to manage the. D, DTRA program and he's there in a photo sh- handing Obama a vial of anthrax on this visit and while he's showing this photograph during this COVID-19 talk he this is what he says um, he says here's a photograph of me showing him a vial of anthrax bacillus the point here is that biology is inherently dual use <laughs> there you go. and he's and he's like but this is not a bioweapons lab this is a legitimate public health diagnostics laboratory so it's like these guys used to like to talk about the dual use, amb- ambiguous nature of this type of research all the time. And now they don't like to talk about it so much now that all this has come out. Exactly. And, you know, three years after that trip, uh, Obama gets elected. And like I said, you know, as soon as he's in there, they uh, continue to uh, refuse a verification mechanism for the BWC under the explanation that you can't tell the difference between um, offensive and defensive uh, research. And um, 
so what happens as a result of this agreement is that um, the Pentagon comes in and a contractor called Black and Veatch, who has a very long history, they've been around for over 100 years and really started their kind of Pentagon contracting at Los Alamos, um, the famous, you know, infamous nuclear research facility where I think they still mm-hmm. have a presence. And um, they've done a, a, a lot of various different government and non-governmental kind of infrastructure building type, whatever. Anyway, they, they're called in to um, update this, this uh, laboratory that um, is called the, it's got a really long, cumbersome name, the Ukrainian II Mechnikov Anti-Plague Research Institute, which is in Odessa. And, you know, according to the U.S., every lab like this used to be a bioweapons lab under the Soviets, and now we're going to turn it into something good. Or whatever. So uh, they actually upgraded to a BSL three, and this was one of the controversies that there was kind of an argument that was out there that these labs in Ukraine are all like BSL twos, maybe BSL one. You know, they're really not dealing with dangerous pathogens. But this is since 2011. This lab in um, Odessa has been upgraded to BSL three capability. Uh, it was specifically this is per. Black and Beach's website designed for work with pathogens that can be, quote, introduced through a bioterrorism attack, as well as through natural origin and all that stuff, too. So, you know, it's pretty clear they're they're dealing with all of this stuff. And, you know, pulling back, it's a pen, it's the Pentagon being involved here. It's Pentagon contractor. It's Defense Threat Reduction Agency. You know, it's all within the auspices of the Pentagon. Uh, so, you know, they are clearly thinking about this in terms of bioterrorism, bioweapons. Uh, it's really pretty hard to deny that. Um, and there's another article I found that um, it, it's kind of like an academic research article um, about various different high containment laboratories throughout uh, various different countries. And there's a chapter on Ukraine in this kind of compendium. And they actually say that there's another BSL-3 um, grade lab. And it wasn't clear if it had gotten the like official BSL-3 designation or whatever. And that's the, um, belongs to the Central Sanitary Epidemiological Station of the Ministry of Health of Ukraine. Um, And I'm not entirely sure where that's located. But at any rate, the point is, Ukraine has at least two BSL-3 level laboratories. And that they can deal with pretty high level um, pathogens. Um, BSL-4 is obviously the highest, but um, Ukraine even seems to have some other classification system because all of these labs can deal with the pathogens in pathogenic group one, which Ukraine classifies as the highest level. So I'm not entirely sure what they are or are not able to deal with there. Um, According to some sources, including even Putin gave a speech on this recently, he actually named some of the pathogens that he believes they're working with, um, which he mentioned specifically coronavirus strains, anthrax, cholera, African swine fever, and other uh, other deadly diseases. So that's at least what Russia is saying that they believe Ukraine is working with in these laboratories. Right. So um, other contractors there uh, include Metabiota, right? Yeah, Metabiota. 
I'm not entirely sure what their role is because I thought they were in Ukraine. They are involved in most of the other Pentagon biolabs and other places. So they're the big contractor at the Luger Center in Georgia and a lot of the African labs. But I'm I'm not sure they actually have as much. I didn't see as much direct involvement. I've seen people claim that. Um, but I was looking back through the um, State Department documents that um, Diliana Dyson-Jeva has saved, and I did not see Metabiota mentioned in there. Mm, okay. um, but it is, I would be surprised if they didn't have some involvement somewhere along the line. In- okay. Well, for those listening, the reason um, I was kind of interested to ask about that is because Metabiota, um, as far as I know it's true, um, are, are connected to this this firm called Rosemont Roseman Seneca or Seneca. Um, in which uh, I guess Hunter Biden, uh, Joe Biden's son, is a is a director. So that you know, having the president's son somewhere in there obviously makes this an even thornier issue for the U.S. administration than than it probably normally um, uh, would be under other circumstances. So um, you know, just worth mentioning that I suppose. Um, starting off, uh, when you started off, Gumby, you mentioned some of this stuff about the um, early '90s and how this came about. And I know that uh, Robbie has some uh, pretty good background on that, and I do too from some of my anthrax research. Because a lot of these figures that help set this stuff up, um, including Sam Nunn, right, end up having some sort of weird tie to uh, Dark Winter, uh, which is uh, I'm sure people uh, listening are pretty familiar with that because I've done a, t- a couple podcasts on the on that topic. But that's the um, the war game, I guess you could say, uh, that preceded the 2001 anthrax attacks and was eerily uh, predictive. But this whole uh, claim, like, I guess, fear-mongering, you could even say, about how these um, uh, Soviet-era bioweapons labs were going to fall into the the wrong hands or be taken over by rogue nations um, or something like that was really used to justify this whole program uh, for decades, really. Yeah, I mean, I I see it sort of after learning more about um, the DTRA and this whole program to you know reduce the threat of of the Soviet biological weapons program. It kind of is, it reminds me of Operation Paperclip in a way. It's like we we used all these disgruntled you know ex Soviet scientists who allegedly worked for their bioweapons program as sort of the backbone for the is what you're saying all these programs it was like well all these scientists are out there and they must have used their expertise or they might have even smuggled out materials to rogue actors or are currently working for rogue uh you know governments like north korea or iraq but then we've we and then as gumby just laid out we've taken in a lot of these ex-soviet scientists uh, or soviet territory scientists um into these programs as part of the dtra uh, threat reduction, you know, thing. Um, so, uh, you know, how many of these Soviet scientists who worked on bioweapons for the Soviet Union are working there? That's unknown, but it definitely seems like some of them are. But so it's interesting that it's like that's part of our, you know, program to reduce the threat, yet that was also used as the reason to like bolster, you know, Project BioShield. Uh, the rush for making the anthrax vaccine, which ended up harming a lot of U.S. soldiers, the smallpox vaccine. Um, and it <laughs> seems to me, Whitney, that yeah. basically Ken Alibic's, you know, whistleblowing, I'm doing air quotes when I say that, um, and a couple other stories that came out of one of them specifically came from Kazakhstani intelligence, um, combined with Dark Winter, the the war game, was 
those three things combined seem to have been the engine that was needed for like this entire biodefense boom that happened after 9-11. There was already a biodefense boom, tons of money being ejected before 9-11. But afterwards, we basically get like a, I think it's something like a three or four fold increase in the amount of funds going to it. I mean, I have quotes in my podcast from Anthony Fauci, who's just like, he's gleeful with excitement with how much money, you know, NIH, CDC, and these different um, biodefense programs were going to get uh, after 9-11. And it was an incredible amount of money. I mean, it's, I think it's a missing narrative with the Bush administration or even before it's like one of their, the main primary goals, it seems like of the U S government was to really bolster and, you know, basically put, inject a ton of money into the biodefense sector, um, around this time. And it just continued to explode after 9-11. Well, you know, it, it wasn't just the public sector that had a huge uh, windfall of of money after 9-11. You also had the private sector really benefiting in a huge way through public-private partnerships. And interestingly enough, uh, one of the main people behind that is, again, Sam Nunn, uh, who was the president in the Dark Winter Exercise and is the Nunn and the Nunn-Luger Act that we were um, uh, talking about earlier. Uh, because right before, I think it was right before 9-11, and I think it was January 2001. It was 2001. Uh, forget the exact month, but uh, Sam Nunn teamed up with Ted Turner, the CNN owner, and uh, pretty much a crazy billionaire because they don't really interview him anymore for a reason. (laughs) A lot of his old interviews uh, have very uh, unsavory quotes that did not age well at all. Um, But anyway, they teamed up to create NTI, or the Nuclear Threat Initiative, which ends up employing other people that were at Dark Winter, like Margaret Hamburg. for example, but in, in the, and so, you know, just like the Nunn-Luger Act, they were initially focused on a lot of uh, n- decommissioning nuclear weapons and, and things like that, uh, but also had a focus on these bio labs throughout the former Soviet Union. And what they tried to do was basically tried to refit these labs, not to make them go to work for, you know, Pentagon biodefense, but to go make them work for Western pharmaceutical companies, basically. So you sort of have... um in the post 9-11 landscape, sort of a mix of both, right? Uh, which is mm-hmm. worth pointing out as well. Um, one thing I also wanted to say about Ken Alibek before we uh, move on, uh, some people may not exactly know who he is, so some background, I guess. Uh, Ken Alibek uh, is his Americanized name. He's a, a Kazakhstan-born uh, guy that was, um, I guess, number two in the Soviet-era bioweapons program called Bioreparat, I guess is how you pronounce it. He was the number two guy in the Soviet bioweapons program, essentially. And he's basically uh, defects under mysterious circumstances uh, not that long before the Soviet Union collapses. And he's essentially recruited by the CIA. The guy that questioned, debriefs him for the CIA is this um, self-described bioweaponeer, William Patrick, uh, who I wrote a lot about in my Engineering Contagion series and in, in part three um, of that, if you're looking for information on uh, Patrick specifically. Uh, but he was, uh, William Patrick is basically the source of the fear-mongering claims about Saddam Hussein having anthrax when there was no evidence for that. Um, and I know that you've talked about him in your podcast, Robbie, about having been behind the uh, idea for brain pox in uh, Richard Preston's uh, book. I forget exactly what it's called, but the one that uh, allegedly 
Cobra event. Cobra event. Yes, that's it. Yeah. That uh, allegedly scared the crap out of uh, Bill Clinton so much that he began this big focus on biodefense, which included uh, the mandatory anthrax vaccination campaign for U.S. servicemen and a lot of the smallpox stuff. Right. Uh, but Ken Alabeck was later found out to be essentially just making crap up. Um, of course, that was years later after he did um, a lot of damage by running, you know, his mouth. And basically, I, I think he basically realized that his success um, after leaving the Soviet Union and being in the United States uh, uh, was, you know, the more outlandish stuff he would say about the Soviet Union, the greater the reaction he would uh, elicit from U.S. politicians and U.S. intelligence and what have you. And it sort of just created this um, weird feedback loop, I guess you could say, in a sense. Um, because, uh, I mean, he basically got found out just like making crap up. And this is essentially admitted in, in mainstream media. But this is, of course, even after the invasion of Iraq, I think he te he testified to help justify the invasion of Iraq as well, making these WMD claims that, of course, were uh, unfounded uh, at the time and uh, before. Uh, and it's also worth noting that around 2001, uh, he was uh, overseeing some of these gain-of-function experiments funded by the Pentagon on anthrax, and I think some CIA-funded ones as well, um, at the West uh, Jefferson, Ohio facility mm -hmm. of Battelle, which a lot of people who have researched the 2001 anthrax attacks, including uh, myself and Robbie, and I don't know how you feel, Gumby, uh, but it very it seems very likely that the source of the anthrax used in the 2001 attacks uh, came from Battelle and not from Fort Detrick specifically, uh, because uh, anyone that really looks into the case knows that Bruce, Bruce Ivins was not the lone wolf uh, anthrax attacker that the current um, narrative holds him to be. Yeah, one, one thing I wanted to mention, you mentioned Battelle, and it made me think of these three, <laughs> these three projects, and there's kind of a weird story behind this, but like a week before 9-11, the New York Times runs an article and Judith Miller is one of the um, bylines on that. The other two are the two other co-authors for the book Germs. And they, so, you know, I'm bracketing that because obviously Judith Miller, a lot of questions there <laughs> yeah. about um, any kind of reliability to say the least. But the, this, um, this article is very strange because it reveals or purports to reveal the existence of three different programs that were all running right up to the edge of violating the Biological Weapons Convention. And there's some debates within like the legal literature about whether it did or not. And one of them almost certainly did. But one of them was at Battelle and it was called Clear Vision. Mm -hmm. And um, it was run through the CIA. And it was, it was basically trying to reconstruct a bomb, <laughs> basically like a, a dirty bomb that was going to... Um, you know, explode. I forget if, I think it was anthrax, but I, I can't remember specifically. Um, but basically creating a germ bomb uh, at Patel through the CIA. And they also, in that article, and then later in the book, which I believe are the only places that, it, that really have ever revealed any details about these projects. Um, they had this Project Jefferson, which was a DIA thing. And it was um, that they were going to try to recreate this genetically modified super strain of anthrax that the uh, Soviets had supposedly cooked up and um, find, you know, figure out that it was basically resistant to any known vaccine and um, basically creating recreating the super strain of, of anthrax. And then they also had Project Bacchus, which was a DTRA project. And um, that one, they were going, they were trying to actually like 
build a mock bioweapons facility. Um, and it was supposedly to figure out if you could produce anthrax on a mass scale um, with like off the shelf equipment. And um, so essentially the project was to create a yeah. bioweapons lab, you know. Um, and as far as I know, the Pentagon and CIA, they've never uh, um, disputed that these projects existed. They've gotten kind of they got a little bit lost, you know, being revealed just. Um, a week or whatever. The anthrax before, attacks. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, before September 11th. And the anthrax. So, yeah, that's that's another um, thing to throw out there. And I I might be technically wrong on this. Maybe you guys could answer. It, but I I was reading something that the Biological Weapons Convention itself has loopholes in it, or loopholes that were maybe even added over time that allow for biological weapons that do not that are not designed to kill that are they they just sicken so somehow like the biological weapons convention itself leaves the door open for that um i don't know if you guys had a comment on that but william patrick i mean he's admitted on record and it's something that he refused to talk about later in his life but he's admitted on video that they were using or planning to use biological weapons on cuba to like sicken the cuban population for weeks like something like three weeks to a month of being like really, really sick, but wouldn't kill people. Um, so, you know, there's all different types of, of genres of biological weapons, but what's really interesting. I mean, I mentioned this on your previous time I was on your podcast, Whitney, but for some reason, the FBI was looking at William Patrick and Ken Alibic as potential suspects in the 2001 anthrax attacks and I don't know if that means there was some factionalization distrust within the agencies about who these people were. But to me, that's awfully interesting that they even got in the crosshairs of the FBI investigation at all. Um, and back to what Gumby was saying about the book Germs written by Judith Miller, there was a PBS miniseries based off of Germs that came out um, a little bit after 9-11 that has William Patrick in it. It's got Ken Alibic in it. And in the in the uh, the miniseries, it shows Judith Miller getting all suited up in like hazmat you know suit, going to the Vector Institute, which is the post-Soviet Union um, lab uh, that stores that is the only other lab in the world besides the CDC's headquarters in Atlanta that's allowed to store the smallpox virus. So this is a completely separate thing I'm throwing out there is that currently in the world right now. Russia, under the control of Vladimir Putin, and the United States are the only countries that are allowed to have smallpox. So both Russia and the United States currently have the only known um, live virus samples of smallpox. And just going back about, you know, b- before 9-11, it seems that the smallpox claims that was uh, that were given out by some of these old Soviet Union defectors was a large played a crucial role in driving some of this biodefense, um, you know, sector explosion, specifically this one story that came out after 9-11, actually, after the anthrax attacks, saying, and this came from Kazakhstani intelligence, saying that people who were infected with smallpox on the RLC, near the RLC in Kazakhstan, was actually the result of a leak of smallpox released from a bioweapons lab run by the Soviet Union somewhere in Kazakhstan. Now, what's interesting is in 2015, 
we essentially built a you know biodefense lab in Kazakhstan. It's one of our mm-hmm. main flagship labs as part of this defense threat reduction mm-hmm. agency. And it's been widely admitted uh, by multiple people on record, and maybe they don't want to admit this now because of this new controversy, but that they were working on or that they were storing Soviet-era biological weapons. Now, the whole claim about what the Soviet Union used to have or what they were working on, it's hard to trust all that because that all comes from U.S. intelligence. But what does that mean? Well, what kind of weapons are they having? I mean, storing there is is something that I think is still in question, like what exactly do they have? Are they saying they have from the Soviet program? Because that's to me, I mean, that is an admission of bio biological weapons being at least stored at these labs, not just in Ukraine, but elsewhere all over, you know, basically surrounding Russia and former uh, Soviet territory. Yeah. Well, and that lab is called the central reference laboratory, the one in Kazakhstan. And I believe it's called that because it's like a reference library for pathogens. They, they house all of these different types and strains of pathogens. And as I understand it, the Ukraine lab that I mentioned in Odessa earlier, the anti-plague Institute one that was created, that was like beefed up and became kind of an interim reference laboratory before they created the Kazakhstan one, which I I guess was like the premier one. And then on the the point of smallpox, one thing I wanted to mention is there's a um, talk, I guess it was, it was testimony to the Senate that Tom Inglesby gave, um, who you both are familiar with for sure, um, right on November 20th, 2019. And he actually talks about smallpox specifically. He starts talking about the way that epidemics could emanate from pathogens that are released from research labs accidentally, including from laboratories working on non-circulating viruses such as SARS or smallpox, or from research work that has created novel epidemic strains of pathogens. Uh, So if it's true that the U.S. and Russia are the only ones that have smallpox, he would be inherently (laughs) talking about the release of smallpox from either us or uh, Russia when he's when he's talking about that. And that whole speech is actually really sort of crazy. The things that he says that are, um, you know, extremely on point for what has happened over the past uh, two years. Um, you know, he's got a certain prescience uh, uh, to him. <laughs> well, I guess you could say he did with uh, before the anthrax attacks, too, because he's a co-author of the, the Dark Winter exercise and then briefed Cheney on it like the month before the anthrax attacks. So I don't know. Maybe that's a right. a career habit. Also, his his mentor Tara O'Toole uh, now works for NQTEL, the CIA's venture capital arm. I just want to mention really quickly, um, and this was something that I discovered on um, Hughesatonic's uh, YouTube channel. He's been doing pulling up a lot of original research about this, and um, there was a Salon article published in 2013 that just straight up has as the headline: "The U.S. is building a bioweapons lab in Kazakhstan." And it's sort of announcing what this lab is going to be. And the the article fully admits um, it's written by someone who's not a total moron because the article basically admits that the U.S. could be using, you know, could still be developing biological weapons and just isn't saying so. So at least this author of this article admits, you know, the obvious. Um, but it's something that I guess even leftists now who are sort of knee jerk reacting against this narrative just won't cannot get themselves to admit that this is this is what this is um so yeah i mean if you look back on previous articles like from you know 
2010 to like 2020, you'll find plenty of admissions. But I think you, I don't know if you mentioned at the very beginning of this, Whitney, that the State Department actually did remove information from its website right after the Russians started talking about this mm-hmm. that lays out that there are 11 of these uh, Ukrainian labs. They tried to like erase that from their website. Yeah, they had PDF fact sheets on each one. Yeah. 11 separate fact sheets, and they all got removed from the site. And by the way, there's a lot of that going on because they um, uh, they took down the uh, grant searching ability, too, on the – I'm forgetting – I'm blanking on what the name of the site is. But basically, you can't search um, grants anymore, like the NAD grants um, that – whole search engine was taken down seemingly right around the time of um, uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Huh. That's odd. Um, yeah. So I would just tell everybody, get yeah. get as many documents as you can now download them. If you if you want to do research on this and find stuff, download the documents because, yeah, they're being yeah. taken online. Well, and speaking of yeah, things that were taken down. So one thing that I found was. Uh, this article that came from, it was posted on Texas A&M's website. And Texas A&M has this, actually has two different BSL-3s, apparently, um, which is kind of insane. That's actually pretty common, though, in a bunch of universities after 9, uh, 9-11 and the anthrax. Right, right. Um, so they have this one called the uh, Veterinary Medical Diagnostic Lab, TVMDL. And so... Speaking of those 11 fact sheets that that Robbie alluded to, um, I was just looking up some of the names and seeing if anything came up. And what I found is that three of the 11 labs, um, three of the heads of them had taken this trip in 2013 uh, to the TVMDL. And um, the (laughs) some interesting facts about the TVMDL. One is that at the time at Texas A&M, they met with um, a guy named Conrad Eugster, whose name I was not familiar with, but um, is actually pretty interesting because he was the guy who provided the AIM strain to Fort mm-hmm. Detrick. Um, the AIM strain had been like found on a of anthrax, right? Yes, the AIM strain of anthrax, right? The de- the particularly deadly strain that was. Um, developed into the anthrax that was used during the 2001 anthrax attacks and had the specific biomarkers that made it so that uh, basically it was traceable right back to Fort Detroit. (laughs) Um, And he was, so he provided back in like 1981, he was the guy that provided the, um, the AIM strain and AIM strain. It's like a misnomer because the return shipping label had AIMS Iowa on it, even though it actually came from Texas. And, um, uh, this lab, they also, they, there's kind of a whole article about the people they met with. They met with a woman named Tammy Beckham, who was an ex-army official who worked at US AMRID and at Plum Island, which is, Plum Island is one, the quite likely source of Lyme disease. Uh, Chris Newby has a whole book called Bitten on this that lays it out pretty pretty solid evidence that uh, Lyme disease really originated at the um the military's bioweapons kind of testing area or development area on Plum Island. And also Plum Island was the likely origin point of the 1971 African swine fever attack that happened on Cuba. So uh, Covert Action Magazine actually had a pretty good recent article from at recent, meaning like a couple of years ago or a year ago, 
where they um, trace back that this 1971 African swine fever virus outbreak on Cuba, which African swine fever affects pigs, it doesn't jump to humans. So it's different from swine flu, which can affect humans. But it's very transmissible and very deadly for pigs. So Cuba had to kill something like 500,000 of their hogs, you know, a huge portion of their livestock um, as a result of this um, attack, which the Cuban government blamed on the United States, blamed on the CIA and had specific kind of people identified who um, were the likely um, uh, perpetrators of it. Obviously, it was denied, but they... um, it reached a level that Congress actually did an inquiry into it and called some people in front of Congress. And um, this Covert Action Magazine piece has some additional information. So anyway, this is all a context for Plum Island and where the kind of people they're meeting with uh, works. One of the people, uh, Nicola Suchuk, who is, um, is actually head of the African Swine Fever and Classical Swine Fever Center in um at the Institute of Veterinary Medicine in Ukraine. And she was one of the people on there. And then, uh, as it turns out, um, there have been, and, you know, this could be zoonotic, I don't know, but um, there are, there have been several outbreaks of African swine fever in the Ukraine over the past 10 years or so, including as recently as 2019, there was one where they had to kill something like 100,000 of their hogs because of, uh, outbreak of African swine fever to, you know, they have to kill them to stop it from spreading and killing even more, I guess, is, you know, basically the idea there. Um, So, you know, that's, that's all um, part of this trip that they took there. The other thing I was uh, going to mention is that at one point, Texas A&M, their, this TV MDL, um, they actually had a uh, exposure event I think they had several, actually, mostly to Brucellus, and um, didn't tell anyone. <laughs> Basically, they just they tried to cover it up, and it eventually came out. And so the CDC, you know, similar to what happened with Fort Detrick in 2019, the CDC came in and shut them down for a time. Uh, you know, to because this is insane that you would never that you wouldn't tell people about this exposure to a deadly pathogen like that. And at the time that that happened, the school was being run, the overall Texas A&M uh, was being run by Robert Gates, huh. which bizarre in itself that he was involved there um, and kind of didn't really get a lot of flack for it. it. It became this huge issue after he left because he left apparently very suddenly and joined the Bush administration um, as uh, secretary of defense. And then, of course, carried over into the Obama era as well. Um, and, you know, has a whole long intelligence history, intelligence agent. He was head of CIA, I believe, at some point. Um, so an interesting chain of events that he would go from that to Texas A&M, where they're, they've got bio labs working with extremely um, deadly pathogens, especially deadly for animals, you know, things that could be used as bioweapons against animals and have been claimed to have been used as such by Cuba. Um, and then, you know, immediately jumps back in and becomes uh, secretary of defense. All right. So I think what you just uh, brought up uh, is, is a good uh, place to remind people that uh, these biolabs are not just in Ukraine. They're everywhere. <laughs> 
I mean, the, the, the Pentagon has like a, a ton of these labs. Um, and also, you know, um, as you mentioned, there's a lot of them pegged to universities and that sort of pro- cropped up after uh, the 2001 anthrax attacks. There was just like this huge, uh, a, a ton of money, a lot of it coming from the NIH, but also from other sources that was being sort of uh, uh, used to create this huge network of uh, like BSL-3 and BSL-2 labs throughout the United States at academic institutions. And we also have, you know, the ones that we've been talking about today in the former Soviet Union. But as far as I know, I mean, and you mentioned that there's some of these in Africa, too. I mean, there, there's really a, a ton of these like all over the world. So like on any given day that there happens to be like, a, I don't know, a, a military uh, conflict erupting somewhere. I mean, there's actually a pretty decently high probability that that conflict zone will like not be too far away from one of these things, uh, which is really crazy to think about. And like, sorry to laugh, I guess, because it is it is very um, dreary. But I mean, I just I just find it um, really insane. And, and, you know, when the emergence of these uh, when evidence for these biolabs like existing in places like we're seeing now in Ukraine come up and to have people like just dismiss it as conspiracy theory because it's like not convenient. Uh, to uh, the, I guess, the narrative of at least one side of of the conflict. I mean, I just, I just, uh, I don't even really know how to respond because there's so much evidence for them existing. You're, you know, regardless of whether there's a conflict or some sort of controversy around it, you know. Yeah, and to put some possible numbers on that, China, the Chinese Foreign Ministry um, released a statement, or I think actually just tweeted it out that the U.S., according to them, has 336 labs in 30 countries under its control. And I know the under its control would be disputed by the Pentagon. And they said, including 26 in Ukraine alone. What's kind of interesting about that is that the Department of Defense actually released a um, fact sheet, quote unquote fact sheet, um, a few days ago on uh, March 11th. And the number that they gave was actually 46 different Ukrainian laboratories, although they say 46 labs, health facilities, and diagnostic sites. So maybe the, the count is different. And the number has been you know, pretty hard to pin down on this whole thing because one, there are so many, and two, there's so much money flowing in from so many different directions um, that you know, it's right. hard to quantify what, you know, what counts as a lab, what counts as a bio lab, what counts as a certainly bioweapons lab, those would be disputed, but, um, and probably not every diagnostic site or health facility that got any Pentagon money from in Ukraine is necessarily doing bioweapons research per se. Um, But certainly it seems quite plausible that many of them are. So we've been talking a lot about uh, the DTRA and throwing out a lot of these other acronyms that I, you know, now realize a lot of people may not be super familiar with. So, um, um, I think we've mentioned at least a couple times, though not necessarily explicitly, that the DTRA stands for the Defense Threat Reduction Agency of the Pentagon. Uh, I know, uh, Robbie, you definitely have some background on that. So maybe you could share that with uh, with my listeners. So uh, we're all on the same page here. Yeah. So there's there's a few different programs which your listeners um, would probably be interested to hear about that the Defense Threat Reduction Agency manages. So one of the ones... Um, Gumby already mentioned is the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program, which is sort of this umbrella program of the DTRA that is supposed to stop proliferation of former Soviet Union 
uh, dangerous weapons, which includes, you know, any form of WMD, chemical weapons, nuclear, biological. Um, and then they have another more specific program that's just for biological weapons. Um, they call it the Biological Threat Reduction Program. So you can find, you know, you can find documents online just by typing BTRP or BTR. Um, you know, even there's even a website for the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. It's DTRA.mil. And it has a ton of documents there. Um, you can even just search for Ukraine in their search engine and find any, you know, programs that they have going in Ukraine. Um, so that's been very useful. And then an another uh, very interesting thing that they're also behind, um, which is something that Gumby has also discussed on Media Roots Radio. I think he's probably, I mean, I think you've also discussed it, Whitney, is this. Um, the, the DTRA is responsible for creating what is known as the discovery of medical countermeasures against novel entities, um, otherwise known as the acronym DOMAIN. Now, this computer program, um, it's was used to be referred to as like a array of supercomputers. You know, they had all these fancy ways to describe it. What it essentially is, is it's a computer program that runs calculations to determine if any vaccines or any treatments available on the market or in pharmaceutical field uh, would work against different pathogens. And bizarrely, this system was used to determine that um, Pepsid AC, famintidine, yeah. was one of those countermeasures that could be used against COVID-19 that uh, Dr. Robert Malone was was uh, flouting a lot. Yeah, well, he actually ran it on domain, right? Yeah, so he he was actually very involved in this program. And interestingly, I was following his Substack writings about, you know, I've been following him a little bit. I don't necessarily trust the guy, but I thought it was really interesting when it came to this story, how he responded to it. Um, I was sort of expecting Robert Malone to be like, you know, these, these labs are dangerous. We are doing these uh, sketchy things here. Russia has a reason to be worried about it, but instead his stance was more like, hey, these are totally above board. It's benign. These are like good programs. Um, I was really involved in them and I could vouch for them. So I thought that was kind of interesting that he was very much defensive of all this and pretty much says that it's like CCP propaganda <laughs> to be talking about this. And that's just as a side note, that's created an interesting split on the right, Whitney, which you know, we didn't see that with the COVID lab leak stuff because most, I would say most Trump supporters just sort of wholeheartedly bought into the more watered down COVID lab leak narrative. This one is different because a lot of right wingers who hate China and are totally paranoid about the Chinese government think that this is a Chinese disinformation operation. So it's creating a split among, so you have on one side, like the Tucker Carlson's, some people like that who are actually pushing this story out there. But then on the other side, you have people like Frank Gaffney and some of these other fire, far right hawk neocons saying this is all Chinese propaganda. Don't listen to it. Um, and that's I, sort of interesting for me to watch because it's like China and Russia together coming, you know, and saying this is creating some resistance on the right um, against that narrative, even though a lot of people on the left are saying, oh, this is all QAnon. This is all right wing narrative if i can interrupt you for a second one interview sure. did you see uh malone say that because there i saw a clip from one um where he was actually saying um that he would see from the russian perspective these labs as a potential threat he said and consistent with an overall pattern of increasing assimilation of ukraine as a client state 
um, of the U.S. and a national security threat. So maybe he's saying different stuff to different uh, people. Yeah, I did. I did see him taking that stance in an earlier Substack piece, and the and it seemed like he got more defensive of them as, as the more the Chinese government got involved in pushing the narrative. From what it seemed like, I haven't read. I mean, I haven't been oh, fully okay. keeping up on it. Um, but at first, he did seem to be like open to this to the narrative, and he kind of got a mo- little more locked it down. So I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it was interesting reading one of his last pieces saying like a lot of people think I'm controlled opposition because I was like in the biodefense industry <laughs> <laughs> for 20 years. Well, it's it's interesting though because um up on the on on unlimited hangout, you know, there's the this article um that we put out in 2020, the um DARPA's man in Wuhan article, right? Uh, that talks about Michael Callahan, who's right. a very, very shady dude um, who used to work a lot with um, Malone. But yes. Malone has since come out and sort of uh, denounced him, I guess, in a way, and called him CIA and called him suspect. But at the same time, I think he also went on the, on Rogan and was like, my buddies in the CIA, not talking about Michael Callahan. So like, I still don't really yeah. know how I, how I feel about uh, the guy. And actually, this is kind of a, a funny story, but I was a uh, consulting uh, Meryl Nass, who um, some of you may know as a, an expert in the 2001 anthrax attacks, or you may know her for her stuff on um, COVID-19. But I was consulting her about um, the series I wrote on Moderna as a company, like before COVID-19, um, and how they were sort of like in uh, very dire straits right before COVID-19 happened. And um, I, I asked her opinion. She said I should contact Robert Malone. And I sent her an email saying, well, I don't know how I feel about him. For these reasons and she accidentally forwarded it to him but <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah but then i mean i was just trying you know i mean i guess it, i smoothed it over because i was like well you know anyone with your background and I'm, I'm gonna be a little skeptical and i'll keep an open mind and blah 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 but you know i guess he knows what i think <laughs> <laughs> well on uh, not to get too bogged down in this because i know it's a little bit separate but on domain the thing that is really sketchy about that is that it was created in late 2019 like it it literally comes into existence in like november 2019 oh did it wow <laughs> which is right before and so and the story there is that michael callahan was in china already although this is really disputed depending on which source you actually go to because um there are very conflicting stories here but one is that he was in uh, China and he uh, heard about the outbreak in Wuhan. And so he took a boat down the river. A casual boat down the river to go investigate the. <laughs> a yeah, casual boat down the river and then just introduces himself at the, uh, the hospital there and is like, uh, yeah, I'm here to help you guys treat uh, this brand new disease. You don't know what it is. And supposedly he like by treating people. He was able to like collate some records and figure out that, oh, a bunch of people that took Pepsid AC or Famotidine, you know, it, it has some different name. They're probably in China. Uh, they were doing better on it than others. And so he contacted Robert Malone, who he's worked with uh, through Ditra Projects um, since Ebola, because they they sort of co-developed the Ebola vaccine. And um, like throws it to him like, oh, you know, this is uh, something you should look into Malone, because he knew Malone was involved in this domain project. So domain uh, Malone contacts some other guy in Canada. I don't know why it would work this way, who runs some numbers or something and figures out that, oh, yeah, famotidine is, is going to work and that's going to be the, the miracle drug. And so they actually then did some trials, but the trials got bogged down in this whole hydroxychloroquine thing, too, where they were giving them both. The story is very murky and very strange, but 
and I don't want to get too, like I said, bogged down in it. But one other point I do want to mention is that I brought up that Thomas Inglesby um, uh, testimony to Congress that he gave in November 2019. And he actually talks about, he doesn't name domain specifically, but he does talk about how um, the Joint Program Executive Office Chem Bio Defense Program, JPOCB, which I guess is under DITRA and runs domain, and um, talks about you know how we need this uh, the, this program to manage the nation's investments in chemical and biological equipment, including medical countermeasures, which is their kind of um, uh, code word euphemism for um, d- drugs, mostly that are on the market already, which was the point of domain. And he also mentions a company called Ology, which used to be called Nanotherapeutics, which uh, is the contractor that built and I think ran this enormous bio lab in Florida that um, Robert Malone was actually involved with getting them the grants because that was what he did for years was getting these DITRA grants to these various clients and stuff. And um, within that context, Inglesby also brings up plague. And um, I think it's something else. He may have brought up smallpox. I can't remember for sure. But Anyway, just a a strange timing on all of that with it being literally like as the pandemic is kicking off. Yeah, it's really weird um, just uh, that smallpox keeps coming up because I know, as you've noted in the really extensive work you've done on on smallpox, Robbie, uh, the threat of smallpox, there was never really any intelligence that it existed back when there was the smallpox, I guess, scare, you could say. Um, around the time of the anthrax attacks and before, because remember, like the dark winter exercise was technically about smallpox, with a very small role mm-hmm. for anthrax that predicted a lot of stuff that did happen with the anthrax attacks. But, you know, the main focus was on on smallpox and the Clinton administration. Well, at its last years had a lot of focus on smallpox stuff um, and after. And so it's just weird that it keeps coming up when there hasn't really ever really been intelligence about a credible threat about it being used. Um, as a weapon of war, as a, a bioterror weapon. Well, I mean, I think that the reason it does, Whitney, is because lo- for a long time, these policymakers and these weirdos in inside this biodefense sector and even outside of weirdos it, is being kind. <laughs> these neocons, <laughs> these psychopaths, they have long seen smallpox as basically like a doomsday scenario, and and an inexpensive one that people with very um, low resources could accomplish. So, you know, on one hand, you have this idea that if a rogue actor or a rogue dictatorship or whatever gets one nuke, that they could use it to have this enormous amount of power leverage. Well, the idea going back all the way to the early 90s was that it would take very little for someone to obtain or even make smallpox themselves and basically release it onto the world making the world potentially uninhabitable so that so the idea is that and and this was something that they would talk about is that like say if we were waging war against iraq for example because this is something that they would talk about even before the iraq war that if saddam has smallpox that as a last ditch revenge uh getting vengeance against the united states if he knew he was going to lose the war he would simply unleash smallpox onto the world like as punishment or as revenge for what the United States did. So essentially it's almost like that same narrative we've heard about Iran, that it's like, 
they would almost use their nukes in the same way like a suicide bomber would. They don't like like they would martyr themselves (laughs) just to get revenge on Israel or the West and and essentially get us into a nuclear exchange, knowing that it would destroy the world just because it's that same mentality they've been pushing about smallpox. And even more, I'd say more insidiously, Whitney, going back to what you said earlier, is a lot of these same people have also been saying that uh, basically DNA synthesis, because the entire genome of smallpox has already been publicly available for, I think, over a decade at least, that eventually in time, technology will be good enough where pretty much someone for like under $1,000 will be able to essentially like print smallpox from scratch. And that's when we really need to start worrying. So a lot of these people are like gaming this stuff out like decades in the future. You know, these a lot of these DITRA people are like, well, someone will be able to make smallpox in 30 years with almost no money. So we got to do all this stuff now because this is going to be the future of like warfare. And, you know, you have all these really convoluted power of nightmares types of thoughts that go into it. But I mean. It really was. I mean, doing all the research I did on smallpox, it's very clear to me now that they used this smallpox vaccination rollout program. They spent half a billion dollars on vaccines. They inoculated 500,000 soldiers with smallpox, and they plan to inoculate 10 million more healthcare and first responders with the smallpox vaccine. I believe this was all done as basically a fear mongering tool to get people to accept the idea of going into Iraq. And the reason why I'm very certain that this is what it was used for is because the polling at the time reflects that over 40% of Americans, right? This is like three months before the Iraq war were asked if we attack Iraq, how likely is it that basically they will attack us with smallpox? And at the time, over 20% of the respondents said extremely likely And over 40% of the respondents of the poll said somewhat likely, which maybe sounds a little ambiguous, but it being likely at all, like because it's such a memory hold thing, like I barely even remember this, the smallpox fear mongering happening. It, to me, that's really remarkable that, you know, 40% of people polled said that it was somewhat likely they believed that if we attacked Iraq, that was like going to open us up to a smallpox attack. Um, and that was what kind of rhetoric was driving, you know, this climate at the time. So I think smallpox played a really crucial role actually in like getting us into the Iraq war. I mean, the anthrax attacks did, but it was like they piggybacked off of the real anthrax attacks with this completely fake. And they even, the CDC even called it this in their documents, a pre-event smallpox vaccination program pre-event. I mean, it's like pre, it's that same mentality that goes into that war on terror fantasy, like pre-crime, like these things aren't even, haven't even happened yet, yet we're going to inoculate millions of people against the potential of a bioterrorist attack against a disease that was eradicated in 1980 that does not exist, like literally doesn't exist outside of a lab. Um, but it's not even a, a pre-event in the sense that there wasn't even like intelligence that it was likely no, to happen. Exactly. It was just like literally made up by people well, fear-mongering. That's, that's why it's part. so crazy. Yeah. That's the fucked up part because it's a it's a paradox, right? On one hand, they're saying, oh, we don't have any active intelligence that a smallpox attack is imminent. But on the other hand, here is a multi-billion dollar program we're rolling out and soliciting state governments to submit their proposals 
where they're all taking it very seriously and we're acting like we're taking it seriously. So it creates this mentality where it's like, well, they're saying there's not a smallpox attack is imminent, but they also want to vaccinate everybody. Like, which is the, where's the real truth here? Are they not telling us that it's imminent? It creates sort of this, almost like this nervousness of like, well, the Bush administration must think this is serious enough, even though they're telling us it's not imminent. I just think it creates this interesting paradox where it's like people have to figure it out for themselves and decide, well, actually, maybe this must be imminent, you know, even though they're saying to us that it's not. Um, As an aside, I sort of almost see like the smallpox thing uh, sort of being like nuclear weapons, like mutually assured destruction. Like they're not actually going to use nukes because they know it would be the end of civilization. I think I think smallpox is a similar like I guess you could say WMD in, in that sense because despite all the fear mongering about smallpox and what you lay out in your series you know when the anthrax attacks happened it was anthrax that happened which doesn't really like spread between people it doesn't have that same yeah you, you know you, it's basically like targeted use whereas smallpox would mm. not be and once you really smallpox you can't really like put it back away right a disease that's been eradicated mm. for decades that a lot of people, I guess, don't really have immunity to it anymore. You can't really put away, right? So I think it's sort of one of these things that they like to wave around, like, uh, you know, the imminent threat of nuclear war and all of that stuff that was used to control people a lot during the Cold War, even though the governments had pretty much decided they wouldn't use it because of mutually assured destruction. I don't know. It sort of seems like smallpox is similar uh, to that in, no, right. in my view, in a way that it's sort of just this um, fear-mongering control <laughs> mechanism, in a sense, you know? I think that the difference between the Soviet Union fears and this is that it adds a new layer of, I mean, there's a dehumanization element to it that makes it seem scarier to people where it's like, well, these terrorists, they're martyrs. They're willing to kill themselves and essentially destroy the world for their like jihadist vision. And I think that that's something that the Soviet Union, we weren't able to characterize, even though we were obviously able to say, oh, the Soviet Union doesn't value life as much as our you know, good old American Americans do. It wasn't the same. It didn't have that same level of darkness where it's like these terrorists are suicidal. They're martyrs. I mean, you even read things from the government saying that it, it just will take 10 martyrs to infect themselves with smallpox just to casually walk around major metropolitan areas with the purpose of infecting people. And that's, and I guess to them at the time, that was believable enough, you know, because it's just adding that extra element of martyrdom to it. Um, right. I think adds that extra layer of believability for. But people. now the face of terrorism is changing. I do want to get into this um, in, in, now in the context of Ukraine because I did have an article recently uh, that I, I it's like uh, Ukraine and the new Al Qaeda. It's called um, basically about um, how it was predicted by a bunch of uh, former and current intelligence officials that the that knew the pandemic was coming. They now know the thing that's most likely to follow COVID is this rise of. Um, global white supremacy terror right at a time when the CIA has been funding an insurgency of, you know, um, crazy white supremacist neo-Nazi groups in Ukraine um, and some other stuff I explore in that in that article. But it's weird because if you remember back to uh, 2020, there were these claims that neo-Nazis and white supremacists were going to weaponize COVID. I don't know if you you guys remember that or not. Like they were going to cough on doorknobs <laughs> and all of the, the no but really i mean th- th- these were stories that were out there back when because 2020 i've written a lot about this and i've talked about this i know on on media roots um with you robbie there was the shift away from sort of the war on foreign quote-unquote foreign terror 
um, or the foreign terror threat to domestic terror, like the CIA for the first time in forever didn't do the worldwide threat assessment in DHS, despite being around since like 2003, uh, chooses 2020 for their first year to ever put out a domestic threat assessment. Um, and then all this stuff about um, right when COVID was happening, all of these articles coming out, quoting top people in the FBI that, oh, we need to get ready for the next OKC, the next Oklahoma City bombing. Um, and it's going to be these white supremacy groups. And a lot of them actually mention this other group called the Russian Imperial Movement that has its origins per them in, in the Ukraine conflict and the Donbass and all of this stuff. It's weird to see how all of this stuff is coming together now. It's very um, unsettling. And in the context of, of how this bioterror narrative that we, that we have now and, and what um, uh, the, the one that you were just talking about, Robbie, I mean, you have people like Bill Gates talking at the Munich uh, Security Conference, I think in 2015. He basically gave this speech like the next pandemic could be created on a computer screen, basically saying that, you know, bioterrorists, uh, whoever they are, are going to go beep, bop, boop on the computer. And then there's going to be this deadly <laughs> virus that, <laughs> that kills everyone. And then he goes on to say, we need to merge health security with national security and basically calls for the creation of a biosecurity state. And there's actually a Wall Street Journal article. I can't remember if it was right at the beginning of COVID or the year or a year or two before of Bill Gates basically calling on the military to take over health security uh, in a big way. Uh, it's, it's very uh, alarming. And if you consider also, you know, the big role the military played with, with COVID stuff in the U.S. and how that was sort of um, done under Trump and, and, and Robert Cadlick specifically and all of that stuff and, uh, starts to get a little a little weird, uh, I would say. But that same claim that, you know, anyone could be a bioterrorist, you know, back in the 90s, it was, oh, they can just buy all this stuff and assemble a deadly virus in their garage um, or anthrax in their garage and all of this stuff uh, that was coming from people like Ken Alabeck and William Patrick. You know, now that's basically been been updated to on their computer screen uh, type of deal, but it's basically the same the same narrative. And now I'm kind of, you know, concerned that there's all these quote unquote warnings that there's this uh, insurgency the CIA is arming and it's going to spill beyond uh, Russia's borders. Uh, I know, Gumby, that you uh, tweeted out that foreign affairs article with uh, Doug London, the former CIA station chief, that basically says that, uh, you know, uh, I mean, it's it's pretty nuts, especially when you consider these the seeding of the narrative when a lot of this domestic terror stuff was first coming out, talking about neo-Nazis using, being interested in biological weapons, specifically in COVID when it was, you know, um, you know, the first year of that and whatnot. Yeah, and we'll just have to mention the, the correlation between the old war on terror and the new war on extremists, right-wing extremists is the base which literally is the name of Al-Qaeda. You know, Al-Qaeda is Arabic for the base. Yeah, isn't that insane? Yeah. Sorry, I just, I just find the whole thing really nuts. Like the Russian imperial movement I wrote about is basically non-existent. Like they're really reaching, yeah. if you look at it, to, to make them a threat. But they designated them a terror entity. They're the first white supremacist group to do that. And they've never killed anyone. There's no proof they've ever killed anyone. I mean, it just, it's bizarre. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. And just on the base, I mean, it was founded by this guy, Ronaldo Nazaro or something like that. And he literally used to work for the FBI <laughs> and the military. So it's like, they're not, they're not even really trying very hard. It doesn't seem like you've just rebranded Al Qaeda as a right wing thing and found a few, uh, you know, ex FBI guys to, to kind of, uh, send some messages to each other or something. It's so in your face. But, you know, if you point out the obvious weirdness that like the war, the war on terror was Al Qaeda 
And then literally the English translation of that is the new boogeyman and how weird that is. It's like, oh, you conspiracy mm. theorists, get back in your cave. And, you know, it's, it, I don't know. I, it's just so frustrating, though, because it's like, I mean, <laughs> uh, when, when you when you dig into the stuff, you know, stuff like 9-11 and the anthrax attacks and you're like, oh, they basically, you know, created the pretext to do what they wanted before and you know, they they made Al-Qaeda anyway back in the late 70s and during the 80s by arming the Mujahideen and all of this stuff. And, you know, it's just like seeing all this stuff going on in Ukraine right now. I mean, it's enough yeah. to make like your brain want to explode. But um, which they're directly talking about now. I mean, I thought I was clever because because <laughs> I found this quote from, you know, not like a, a huge article from uh, Representative Adam Smith, who's the head of the House Foreign Affairs Committee or whatever it is. And he was saying in this committee or subcommittee, um, something like, yeah, you know, we need to arm the insurgency, get ready to arm the insurgency in Ukraine and create a new Al-Qaeda. Or not, I mean, he didn't say create a new Al-Qaeda. That would be um, <laughs> That would have been useful. <laughs> but basically said we need to do what we did in Afghanistan yeah. in the 80s. And I kind of thought, oh, this is a good find. And then literally like two days later, Hillary Clinton goes on Rachel says Maddow. The same says thing. The, the, the exact same thing. I was like, oh man, they are not even, they're not even trying no, to. No, they're not. And the crit. I mean, do you think this could be psych? I mean, part, I mean, is this cons- too conspiratorial to suggest that it might almost be like trying to rub it in Russia's face? Like, I mean, like, especially when Victoria Newland admitted that. Part of me was wondering, is she trying to light a match on purpose and get this to escalate? Because it's like, you have to wonder sometimes are some of these people like trying to poke Russia in the eye with just rhetorically. I mean, I know Hillary's crazy, uh, but still, you know, her just straight up saying that is makes me she wonder. She really is crazy. I mean, in that interview, you know, she's like talking about ar- repeating the, you know, Mujahideen model, like arming the group that later became the Taliban and Al Qaeda. And yeah. then she like, she like laughs. She literally laughs and goes, there were some unintended consequences. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, yeah. it's nuts. I mean, ugh, war criminal Hillary. I, I think there's something to, yeah, I think there's something to what Robbie is saying because they, I mean, Russia knows this. The The CIA has been um, training at least special forces, Ukraine special forces for um since 2015, I think it is. And they're openly talking about this insurgency idea. They're kind of seeding the ground that like, if Russia takes over Ukraine, it will become Afghanistan and you will get bogged down in a, in a war against a U.S. backed insurgency. And we're going to, um, you know, play it up to the hilt. And I think the bioweapons are kind of connected yeah, into I that. Agree. I mean, I think there is a genuine fear from Russia that um, that the U.S. could do something with the bioweapons, uh, with the labs. And, um, you know, I, I, I this is totally speculative, but I almost kind of think Putin maybe is afraid that he's going to be assassinated and that that is that. the real reason that they, you know, there was this whole fear about that he was like, oh, he's a super COVID concern guy or whatever. But I, I kind of almost wondered if it wasn't like, you know, I want to keep away from you in case you've got a, a pathogen. You're going to. Yeah, yeah. Can <laughs> I kill me? Because he he actually had a conversation with Lukashenko, which is on the translated on the Kremlin website where they almost seem to kind of allude to or Lukashenko kind of alludes to this idea that like 
they were being shot at by um, Ukrainian forces or something a few days before the the invasion. And Lukashenko actually brings up biological weapons too in that context. So I don't know. That may be a little too speculative, um, but I don't know. I think it's out there. And the other thing too is that you know, it is hard to get a, a grapple on what exactly the objective is with these biolabs, because one thing that does seem to have happened is that the Ukrainian Ministry of Health, pretty much as soon as the invasion happened, or maybe even right before, made an order to destroy a bunch of, a bunch of pathogens that were held in these biolabs. Um, that's at least what Russia is alleging. And Robert Pope, who's the head of uh, Cooperative Threat Reduction Agency, um, he gave an interview to uh, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists that came out like the day after the invasion, saying, you know, basically raising the alarm, saying a lot of the stuff that Victoria Newland ended up saying, um, but didn't get as much attention that, um, you know, there are deadly pathogens in these labs and work we and kind of distancing himself from Ukraine a little bit, too, in saying that. Um, they have more pathogens in more different labs than we like, and we're urging them to quote unquote consolidate them. Uh, and and um, basically and uh, basically saying that you know he wants them to destroy these pathogens. The WHO, it was also reported, had informed Ukraine uh, that they should be destroying pathogens because they're looped into a lot of these bio labs in Ukraine as well. So, you know, I don't know it, what. Who knows what or who's afraid of what? But it does seem like the U.S. was pretty afraid that um, Russia was going to seize one of these labs and, you know, sort of announce to the world everything that's inside of it. That's what Robert Pope said directly. He said these could be a big kind of propaganda coup for the for Russia because they'll uh, create stories about the pathogens in there, you know, make up uh, bioweapon stories or something like that. <laughs> Well, I mean, Ken Alabeck did that and did, <laughs> actually yeah. did that. Didn't Pope himself admit in that same article that they do hold old Soviet biological weapons and that the yes. Russians could like use that as a propaganda tool to be like, this is the U.S. making biological weapons? Yeah, I yes. mean, that's quite an he admission did. right there. It's like those are the I mean, as far as I saw that him and Victoria Newland are the only U.S. officials to like admit the truth about what seems to be going on to some extent, whereas everybody else is in like full denial mode or just simply saying it's a conspiracy theory. I mean, is that, have you guys seen any other U S officials confirm the existence of these, of this, these programs since all this came out? No, Mm-mm. I don't think so. Um, not from the U S side. Yeah. Uh, though really quick before we move on uh, to another topic about, uh, I wanted to bring up something about um, what we were talking about with this whole comparing it to the Afghanistan model. You know, so I think, um, you know, like you were saying, like maybe they they're they're trying to like get at Russia or send like a covert, I guess you could say signal to Russia and drive them nuts with uh, how blatant they're being. But I think at the same time, they're also trying to seed in the mind of people that like there's going to be blowback. Like, I think the quote unquote blowback is going to be like intentional from what uh, I've written about and and sort of seen in this in this context in the sense of like. The blowback, quote unquote, from Afghanistan was Al Qaeda, right? And the the blowback from Iraq was ISIS, right? And 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 that sort of stuff. Like, 
the mm-hmm. blowback is going to be the, the white supremacists, the neo-Nazis, because the claim I didn't really make that explicit now, but it's explicit in my article, is that these all these white supremacist groups are like uh, creating a global web and they're knitting themselves together and allegedly, per this narrative, at the center is the Russian imperial movement, which is a very convenient name uh, for right now, right? <laughs> Russian wants to expand and annex. That's sort of what it, it implies by the name, even though this group is... um. Uh, really small and there's really not a lot of evidence that even exists. Uh, but I think, you know, in, in that context, it seems like uh, the the blowback thing is, is really critical because everything that you can, all those different quote unquote models that they cite, uh, Syria, Iraq, and in Afghanistan, that we need to repeat that in Ukraine. I mean, the obvious consequence of all of that has been this sort of blowback as some people call it. Um, but I think in this case, and I would argue in the previous cases as well, the blowback was actually intentional. Um, so I don't know. We'll see what happens. But um, what you were talking, what you guys were talking about more recently, I want to get sort of your thoughts about these counterclaims now coming from uh, some U.S. Mm. officials that Russia will now uh, is is thinking about using uh, uh, doing a false flag, like actually saying that false flag um, e- using potentially biological weapons. Now that these this whole um, you know bio lab thing has has come to the forefront, uh, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I think um, Anthony Blinken said that in the middle of February, before anything had even happened, um, he was he was saying that this uh, kind of false flag was going to happen. And I think I don't think he actually said biological weapons at that time. He was saying chemical weapons, which has been kind of more yeah. the thing that the U.S. has tied Russia to through Syria, you know, in these these manufactured claims. Um, but yes, that has morphed into this idea that they're going to do some kind of attack, maybe chemical, maybe biological. And I just, I mean, I don't know at this point what purpose that would serve. It would have, I guess, just logically thinking about it, it could have made sense if they had done a false flag as a pretext for invading Ukraine. But at this point, they already did invade Ukraine. I mean, they are in there, they're fighting the war. So what you know, I don't know what a false flag would accomplish from their point of view. I can't see that it would turn the tide of like opposition, you know, the the Western backed opposition to Russia just by manufacturing something. So it, I don't know that logically it makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, the only thing I can say just to respond to that last point you made, Gumby, is that it could be just some kind of catch all umbrella excuse for if some major atrocity happens there like from any side because it's like if you're filling the dialogue with this much seeding the like the dialogue with this many accusations of false flags um you know it seems to just priming people to believe whatever side they want when something terrible happens if it does but you're yeah. right i mean it doesn't it's like why chemical and biological weapons i mean we've seen this play out before in syria the u.s was saying assad's about to launch a gas attack and then as soon as he allegedly does, then we're like, we're going in. Um, I mean, it is odd that it, it does echo those past events. But there's also, I mean, there's multiple strange things about this that I think are noteworthy. I think the inclusion of China coming out officially and saying things about this is very interesting because for the last two years, the alternative media largely here, you know, conspiracy media, even a lot of right wing media has been heavily pushing the idea that. COVID-19 leaked from this lab in Wuhan 
that the Chinese government may even be involved in it. And so I think it's rather ballsy, actually, for them to come out and say this about these biological labs that the U.S. is responsible for. I think that's them sort of going out on a limb and, and escalate or, or amping up the rhetoric in that regard more than they have before, like for the last two years. So I was surprised by that. Um, the other aspect of it is you're mentioning this stuff about white supremacist, domestic terror, how that's things are sort of shifting to that. It's interesting to see Putin utilizing both paradigms. So he, while well, he's also saying that they're he's saying the same thing, that there could be a biological or chemical weapons attack. And it's, it could be made, you know, they might stage it to make it look like it's done by Russia, but it'll actually be done by the Ukrainians. The Russian government officially came out, I think it was from one of their embassies and tweeted that the Azov battalion itself is planning to stage like a dirty bomb style attack on one of their own nuclear reactors in Ukraine. And so, this, I mean, at this point, it's so convoluted with the amount of accusations flying back and forth yeah. about false flags that. I we've I mean we've never really seen anything like this before where the Alex Jones you know what used to be relegated to like the Alex Jones vernacular is now being used against these adversarial nations towards each other like every day um it seems like and that's quite bizarre and I think it just it's basically just going to create a situation where if anything horrific happens in Ukraine if there is some kind of chemical attack it's going to be, a, it's going to amp up this information war to a degree that we have not seen before. Um, and it's scary. Um, but I, I mean, I don't really know what to make of it. It is very strange because this even started, I mean, you go even back before the invasion, the US and Russia were both accusing each other before saying, well, there's going to be a false flag of some kind that they're going to do to initiate the invasion. Well, that didn't happen. They invaded anyways. Right. And I don't know where this is going to go, but it is awfully strange that there are all these labs in Ukraine. And if they are hit by some kind of munition or if they're bombed, I mean, what happens to those pathogens? Um, I have a quote from Jerome Hauer in, in the last episode of my smallpox series, basically saying, oh, yeah, if we find any WMDs in Iraq, if they're if they were making like smallpox or anthrax, like all the bombs we drop on those places anyways, we'll just destroy those viruses. So it's like not a big deal. Like we'll get rid of them with the bombs. Oh, <laughs> thanks, yeah. Jerome. He's like, he's like, <laughs> the bomb will create such a hot fire that, you know, any pathogen will will be instantly destroyed. It's like, well, OK. I mean, so that was what our officials were saying 15 years ago. And now they're saying pretty much the opposite. Um, and I tend to believe the the new version of the narrative that, yeah, those labs being breached either with a bomb or whatever is it's, it's seems highly dangerous. Like I don't, I, I don't know what could happen. And yeah, it's like once the pathogen gets released, I mean, the attribution of where it came from or who released it, I think is going to be very ambiguous and a, different people will be able to spin that in different directions very easily. Um, it'll be more difficult, I think, than tracing a chemical weapon. Or something else like that. I think it, it it could create this ambiguity where we'll have finger pointing on all sides. And, you know, I mean, we already kind of, we didn't really see that with COVID, but I think that's what we'd see now if something like this happened. Um, and because we don't even know, they keep saying they have Soviet program biological weapons in these labs, but we don't even know what they exactly have. We At this point, we have to go by what the Russian government is claiming they found. And I personally don't, I can't take that at face value at the, at the moment. So I'm still like confused about what, are, what do these labs actually have in them? We know that some of them have anthrax. 
We know some of them probably have plague because they've admitted that. But what else do they have? Do they have smallpox? I mean, if they have smallpox, that's like a that's kind of a world breaking. That should be like headline news. And I like I feel like eventually we might they might be like, yeah, we had smallpox there. And uh, that's going to be very controversial if that comes out. Yeah, we don't. The only thing we know, I mean, there is some published research by people that work from these labs that I looked up a little bit, but it, it's um, a lot of it is more veterinary focused, at least what's you know publicly published. So like hantavirus, which um, affects rodents or whatever, they definitely have African swine fever. That was confirmed by Robert Pope, and it just makes sense because they have all of these different outbreaks of of uh, of swine fever that have happened over these past, you know, several years. Um, and he seemed quite concerned about it that, you know, that if you attacked a lab or if a missile hit a lab, even accidentally, that it would, that it could release things. So, I mean, I, and I kind of agree with you, Robbie, that that does seem plausible to me. It's a different context, but I know in 1999 during the bombing of Kosovo, uh, the NATO bombed a, a chemical plan of some kind and it did release like a huge toxic cloud that I think killed a bunch of people. Um, so, you know, pathogens are different than chemicals like that. I get that, but, um, you know, certainly I would be concerned about it if I live, you know, live near one of these labs. And I just want to throw this out there. The, the U S government has been claiming since the nineties that the Soviet union developed super smallpox vaccine resistant, more contagious version of smallpox. Yeah, they said the and, same thing about anthrax too. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so they had this catch-all thing going back to the '90s, where it's like, to me, it's completely conceivable that the U.S. government actually made something like that. And if it ever, if something like that ever got out, we would say we would blame Russia or this ex-Soviet program for it. When in reality, it's like we really can't say for certain that the U.S. didn't develop something like that, and it would be completely within the realm of reason to be like, yeah, that country developed this vaccine resistant thing. Well, meanwhile, we're the ones who actually did it in a lab and we know it's possible. And that's actually our impetus for driving this narrative is that we, we know it's possible because we've made it. So, I mean, if something like that breaks out of a lab, I mean, that's going to be basically be, you know, it'll be a extreme flashpoint right now. It's like, we're only saying on the record officially that only regular smallpox samples exist in a lab in Siberia and in a lab um, in Atlanta in the United States. But, you know, who the hell knows uh, what they actually are working with or have at these labs. Um, it's, it's quite scary. I mean, I don't even, sometimes I don't even like thinking about this stuff cause it's like, <laughs> I mean, probably way worse than we're actually thinking right now. I mean, to be honest. <laughs> well, when you listen to all this, this like neocon fear monger, fear mongering and you read about it like from decades ago and how it's sort of still going on in some ways, you know, it, it definitely, uh, uh, can definitely, um, I don't even really know how to put this, I guess that taint your view of things <laughs> to, to put it mildly. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, you know, I think a lot of this comes down to sort of like fear mongering stuff, because if the ultimate goal is stated by people like Bill Gates is to get health security and national security uh, merged, you know, uh, there's lots of ways this current situation in Ukraine could be manipulated to advance that ultimate goal. So I think it's important uh, to keep an eye on that goal and how, how it, how they try and advance it, uh, not just, you know, how they might get there. Right. Because ultimately what they want to do is sort of create this biosecurity state. Essentially, that's what they're, they're saying. And after the anthrax attacks, you know, um, 
they they had they made efforts to do that through you know like like the total information awareness uh, program and the information awareness office wanted to add like this bio surveillance capability to not just um, uh, surveil and sort of create this I guess you could call it pre crime pre event. Uh, system for bioterror attacks, but also for natural pandemics and regular disease outbreaks of diseases that weren't even considered to have pandemic potential um, by basically surveilling like what people bought, the media they consumed, and all of this other crazy stuff. I mean, that's essentially where uh, that's going. And I think that is a world that none of us want. Uh, that's just my opinion, though. Anyway, um, we're about out of time here, so I wanted to uh, give you guys a chance to let people know where they can uh, follow you and support your work. So, um, Robbie, why don't you start and let uh, let listeners know where they can find you, follow your work, uh, and to check out your very excellent uh, work on smallpox. Well, uh, you can find um, my podcast uh, that I do with my sister, Abby Martin, on pretty much any podcast platform. It's called Media Roots Radio. Uh, we just unlocked two episodes from our smallpox bioterror hoax mini series um we we are just about to put out episode five of that series and it's jam-packed with like tons of a of like never seen before i mean never seen since uh this happened like tv archive clips uh all over the news about the smallpox program um on the upcoming episode we are going to discuss how uh, one of the first journalist deaths in Iraq that occurred was likely from the smallpox vaccine and the army actually tried to cover it up and say, well, the guy was just really stressed out. His name is David Bloom. They, they claim he was so stressed out in these cramped Humvees with us soldiers that he got a blood clot from stress and, uh, and died. Um, a lot of people at the time thought it was from the smallpox vaccine. So that's what we're covering next. Um, you can also, you can check out, uh, the whole series, if you want to get access to the entire series, by subscribing to Media Roots at patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. And uh, just on a completely different note than the subject we've been talking about today, I just released on YouTube uh, for free uh, the second part of my documentary series, um, A Very Heavy Agenda, which focuses mostly on the first Ukraine Euromaidan US-sponsored coup around 2014 um that's on youtube right now on my uh my youtube channel a very heavy agenda so the full movie's there go check that out and um i'm on twitter at fluorescent gray and um i am also on twitter <laughs> that's basically where i am uh at gumby the number four christ um which is a stupid goofy name i made up uh years ago never really thought that i would be telling people in person <laughs> on an interview that you're looking me up but um you know i try to post research uh mostly try to do you know somewhat original type of research and um highlighting you know things um new and historical um and I've appeared on Media Roots before, so you can check out those episodes and a few other podcasts along the way. So that's basically... Uh, and you will be again soon. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thanks so much uh, for, for coming on today, guys, trying to unpack this uh, really thorny issue. And like uh, so much going on in Ukraine right now, it's really hard to know what's what because, I mean, really, there's just been a sort of a flooding of information from both sides that's like really 
um, intense and difficult to sort through, especially for those of us that can't exactly uh, go to Ukraine <laughs> to see to see what's happening uh, for ourselves. So I really appreciate um, the work you guys have been doing on these uh, on these issues. Uh, and also a big thank you to people that support this podcast. As most people probably know, this podcast is premium for a couple days and then becomes publicly available to everyone. Um, and then you can uh, share it around publicly as much as you want, uh, which I would really appreciate if you enjoyed this episode. And for those that have been asking, uh, you can download episodes through any podcast app because this podcast is available in all sorts of uh, podcast apps, not just uh, Rockfin and SoundCloud, which is the links I tend to promote on uh, my social media accounts. So with that being said, thanks so much for tuning into this episode and catch you all next time. <laughs>